Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Franchises don't haven't earned any sort of special contractual treatment. It's a contract. The law with respect to vicarious liability is pretty clear-cut, um, and it's whether or not you have control or the right to control the agent's actions. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I am really sweaty right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe. Details? Are we, you don't we want those details? <laughs> <laughs> I just carried my dog over like half a walk home. I She has become a really good actress and I cannot tell when she's just tired or when she just doesn't want to go home. But both scenarios involve me. She's kind of big. She's 20 pounds and I'm out of shape. So. Well, 20 uh, pounds to carry for a while is not easy. I, yeah. th- this is years ago, but I had a, had a dog, uh, that was, um, it, it was, she was a mutt, but she was very top heavy and had very small legs and, uh, we would go on hikes and she would get tired out. And, um, and so I remember one time I had to clean out my backpack, stick her in my backpack and put her paws like on my shoulders and just, I hiked yeah. the rest of the way with her, with her just riding on my back. Yeah. I was wishing for a backpack. I know that they yeah. make those. I can't imagine wrangling my dog into one, yeah. but I was, I was wishing for one. Um, but anyway, otherwise I'm good. How are you, Steve? Oh, I, I can't complain. I'm uh, good. Good to be on, uh, be on the podcast. I should say we, we are, we are, we are right at the cusp, uh, Yvonne of hitting 200,000 downloads. So, uh, so that's a big, uh, big milestone for us. So we want to make sure everybody tells their friends, family, even people they don't like that much download the podcast. Tell everybody about this dog podcast that's that right. you're listening to. Right <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not about dogs. It's about the law and we're going to get to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me go ahead and interview and introduce our uh, guest today. We have a great lawyer from up in Philadelphia, uh, Frank Mangerasina. Uh, I hope I'm not murdering his last name, but Mangerasina. Frank Mangerasina is our uh, guest today from Klein Spector, who uh, we've had. Um, Shannon Spector was on the podcast before. And uh, and we have Frank on today, and uh, we're so glad to have you, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, Steve. Yvonne, thanks for having me. I hope this is a good enough episode to get you over the two hundred thousand download hump. <laughs> yeah, that's right, not, that's right. Please don't don't come calling. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, wait a minute, Frank. What'd you do to us? <laughs> <laughs> no, no this- I don't. I don't think that's going to be the case, especially when we sort of get into what your verdict was and who it was against. I think a lot of people are going to wonder how you pulled off this magic. Yes. Yes. So um, let me first tell everybody about Frank uh, a little bit so that um, they can know who we're talking to. First of all, if you want to look up Frank, you go to kleinspector.com. That's K-L-I-N-E-S-P-E-C-T-E-R.com. Uh, and you can look up Frank. And uh, Frank is based out of Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. He is um, uh, uh Bar qualified in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey, uh, has been named a Pennsylvania rising star for the last four years uh, and is uh, a graduate from Lehigh University and um, then went on to get his law degree from Temple Law School. And while at Temple, uh, I mean, just uh, the uh, number of awards um, that Frank received while at Temple and the um, accolades, not only was he uh, top 5% of his class, Order of the Coif, 
um, uh, staff editor for the Law Review, but he was also in their national trial team and uh, was invited to come to the National Institute of Trial Advocates, otherwise known as NIDA, um, to their trial of champions where they um, uh, finished among the top teams. And uh, and Frank has, uh, since leaving law school, has had a, a, a great law career and is with, obviously, a fantastic law firm, uh, Klein Spector, has been involved in a number of high-profile cases, including uh, uh, cases that have resolved for $44 million for a, um, a man that was uh, quadriplegic uh, from a light fixture falling, um, several medical malpractice re resolutions of um, in the multi-millions. And then, of course, the uh, case that we're talking about uh, that he tried uh, last year uh, that resulted in a $2,109,553 verdict against, uh, among others, Domino's Pizza. And we'll talk about uh, some of the complexities there because uh, getting dominoes on the hook was not, uh, as easy as it sounds. Um, so we'll talk about that, but, uh, but again, uh, Frank, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. I mean, the, um, the, the trial team stuff I did in law school was, was fun, but a lot of people are good at trying fake cases. And this <laughs> trial I did last summer, it was, uh, I'm more proud of that because once you, have, it's, it's when the rubber meets the road, you That's know, right. you, you get right. excited to be a trial lawyer and then eventually you get the opportunity to do it. And, and it's a lot different than the, uh, the competitions as much as, as, as helpful as they are. Yeah. Well, I think the competitions are great for getting in front of a judge and jury and, and working that out. But as far as building a case and how you put it together, uh, since you're already given your facts and sort of told what you can use and what you can't, then uh, that's a little bit different. I mean, building a building a case that's going to trial is not easy. And, and when you've got uh, lawyers on the other side that are fighting you the whole way, um, it makes it even tougher. So, um, well, let's get into let's get into this case. Oh, Steve, before Sorry, I forget two things, we didn't um, we didn't say where you could look up um, Frank we yes, at, at Klein Spectre. Kleinspector.com. Yeah. Okay. Yes, good. Did I, you say that? I did say that. Yeah. Oh, damn it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Then just one <laughs> thing that, which I just wanted to give a shout out to Nathan Worksman, our previous guest who um, helped connect us with, with Frank. So shout out, shout out, Nathan, you're going to get busted if you don't listen to this episode. That's right. Well, That's no. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That better be one of the downloads. Um, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Come on, Nathan. Get us yeah, over I'll, 200. I'll, I'll make sure of it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, let's go uh, to the case. The name of this case uh, was Clarence David Coriel and Sandra Coriel versus Stephen Morris, uh, Robiza Inc. and Domino's Pizza LLC. Uh, it was tried. I wrote down when it was tried. It was April of last year, I think. August, August. August yeah, one of those eight months, eight, August of 2021, um, tried in Philadelphia County uh, in Pennsylvania. And um, it, this involved a uh, collision between a Domino's uh, pizza driver and uh, which was Mr. Morris and um, Mr. Mr. Coriel. And I think he went by uh, Dave or, or David. Uh, and uh Basically, uh, Mr. Coriel was driving his motorcycle. He was driving eastbound on East Cherry Lane in Souderton, Pennsylvania. And um, while he was driving past um, Mr. Morris, who was driving a, a Chevy Cruze uh, heading westbound, Mr. Morris uh, just made a left turn directly into um, 
and into Mr. Coriel and uh, caused a just a significant crash. And we're going to talk about the injuries uh, in detail uh, for uh, what happened to Mr. Coriel and how much he had to go through. But he suffered a uh, best way to describe it, I think, is a shattered leg, um, a left leg, as well as. he had a head laceration, subdural hematoma, a, a zygomatic arch fracture, uh, and then a number of other injuries. Um, but the Steve, most sig- significant, sorry, go yes, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> the I most just, sig- wait, I just oh, want to tell you, you that I was preparing for this episode while I was eating lunch and the medical illustrations actually like turn my stomach a little bit that's how bad some of these injuries were well i will say and i was going to do a shout out the the medical illustrations of the uh injury and then of the the surgeries that were done afterwards all the way up until um ultimately uh mr coriel and i think i got this right frank but it sounded like he was scheduled to have his leg amputated at the time of trial but it hadn't actually been amputated is that right that is correct yeah okay Okay. So, uh, so the, the, uh, medical illustrations, um, really did a great job and uh, hopefully we'll put this on our site. So, so people can look at it and look at who, who uh, did these, is it okay? Uh, Frank, if I say the company that did the uh, medical illustrations for you, please do. They do a great job. Yeah. It's called trial FX and that's F as in Frank and X as in X. I don't know. Um, so trial FX and the illustrator is, uh, a guy named Mike Carney. I've worked with him before. He does a really, really great work. And um, I, I think it added a lot of value to the case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it it's so important, I think, you know, not because when you tell somebody that they were involved in a motorcycle accident and broke their leg, that sounds like one thing. But when you really see uh, what Mr. Coriel uh, had to go through, the amount of surgeries, how badly uh, his uh, leg was shattered, it was a a um, it's described as an extensive comminuted pylon fracture of tibia, tibia and fibula with disruption of the syndesmotic joint. But I mean, it, it is just a crushed um, it, it, all the way down to the ankle in the tibia um, is just crushed. And um, and I think one of the doctors who testified at trial testified that putting it back together was like trying to take shattered glass and piece it back together somehow, um, which is which explains why uh, there were so many uh, post-surgical complications for Mr. Coriel and and why ultimately uh, it was decided that he was going to have his uh, his leg uh, amputated below the knee. Um, so, I think I hit most of the most of the injuries. The the um, uh, the Verdict amount was two million one hundred nine thousand five hundred fifty three dollars, one hundred thousand of which was loss of consortium um, uh, damages for. Uh, I almost said Frank for David, uh, David's <laughs> wife, Sandy. Um, and um, I mean, anyone who's ever done a trial knows that you probably are entitled to some loss of consortium damages. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so the, so this is, um, uh, I mean, just a terrible injury. And so my understanding, Frank, of, of the, the, the basic where the heart of the fight of, uh, was in this case was not so much in claiming whether or not uh, Mr. Morris was at fault for the collision. It, it, although I thought it was interesting that the 
defense lawyer pointed out that your client didn't remember the incident and their client sounds like was not at trial. Was was Mr. Morris not there? Uh, no, Mr. So uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, Mr. Morris had some some personal issues that prevented him from being available at trial. So um, we had the accident reconstructionist um, and we ended up getting an eyewitness, which is which is an interesting story, because on the police report, there was an eyewitness who I was trying to hunt down. Um, his name is Eric. And I spent y- literally years, you know, every couple of weeks, maybe once a month, I had on my calendar call Eric. He never answered the phone. Trial's coming up. And I say, what, you know, what the hell? I'll call him one more time. Hmm. He answers the phone. I'm blown away. Um, we get him to come. Um, and, and turns out Eric is just a he was, he was a great guy, really timid witness, though. So on cross-examination, the, uh, the defense lawyer did a pretty good job um, uh, creating some doubt. But what Eric said was he was at a stop sign right where the intersection happened. So a, they were going east and west. He was going north, uh, a northbound lane of traffic that had a stop sign perpendicular with the street on which the accident happened. And he said that Stephen Morris, the driver, was looking to make a left turn onto his road. And as he was looking to make a left turn, he said he made eye contact with Stephen Morris. Um, and Stephen Morris started to drive, hit Dave Poriel. So that contact is important because he wasn't looking for oncoming right. traffic. So, um, and this is this is an interesting story I wanted to tell because it kind of relates to the uh, the COVID courtroom. Courtroom was full of plexiglass, right? Right. Plexiglass yep. in front of the witness, in front of me, in front of the judge. Um, and when they're make on cross examination, the defense lawyer. Um, said, so, you know, how far away were you? 50 feet. You're 50 feet away and you were looking through your windshield and his windshield. And you're telling us that you were able to actually see his eyes and make eye contact with him. Yes. And the defense lawyer is trying to make a big deal of this. But on redirect, I said, there's a piece of plexiglass right in front of you, right? Look all the way in the back of the courtroom. That's about 50 feet, isn't it? And you see that guy sitting back there? Like, Can you see his eyes? Uh, and he said he could, and, and we got a chuckle out of the jury, but the uh, we got a chance to use that plexiglass to, mm-hmm. to my advantage. Some some of the benefits of the COVID trial. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it also it reminds me of a my cousin Vinny moment, you know, where he uh, he says, you know, I see you wear glasses. Were you wearing them that day? And he's like, well, they're readers, you know. So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, yeah, that was that was a good recitation of the uh, of. Of, of the facts of the case. I mean, it's really a simple motor vehicle case until you realize that the franchise doesn't have enough coverage. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, so that's where I was going. The, the big fight in this case was not so much over who was at fault for the collision. Uh, it was pretty much uh, agreed to that Mr. Morris was at, at fault. And I think it was agreed to that he was working for Robiza, the, um, the uh, franchisee um, that uh, that had the, the, the Domino's pizza, but then the big fight came down to two things. One was whether or not Domino's pizza had, um, vicarious liability for the, uh, actions of Mr. Uh, uh, Morris and, um, and whether or not they had control over Robiza and, and ultimately Mr. Morris. Uh, and then the other, uh, big fight came down to the, damages or, or or how much the reasonable uh amount of uh, value was for the damages to um Mr. Coriel's uh left leg and i think the big fight there came down to um 
what happened to him because what one thing I didn't explain in the injuries is that you know he so he has this injury he has several surgical fixations you know um, multiple hospital visits and got badly infected to the point where his ankle uh, started to collapse uh, and so it then came time to to decide whether or not they were going to do an ankle fusion um, or an amputation. And the difference between those was that the ankle fusion, you know, might give him, he'd save his foot and he'd, you know, have some ability to, to walk, but it was going to be very painful, uh, for one. And then, um, he would have a lot less movement, um, for, you know, for the other. And then the other decision was, is the amputation, which obviously people don't want to do, but it, with the amputation, my understanding was he would have, uh, a significantly less pain uh, to live with with the amputation. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it came down to a trade-off between what level of function or loss of function is is it worth to to keep your foot? Uh, because clearly the better route for pain and for function would be to go with the amputation, especially given how advanced prosthetics are. Um, but the obvious downside is that you have to have an amputation. Right, right, exactly, and and I I saw in there, and I, I'm always one thing I love about trials, and you know, is is uh, demonstratives or how you get up and you demonstrate, you know, things to the jury. And I think it, I saw somewhere in there that it was uh, that you had your treating physician or the surgeon show the jury what it would have been like for him to walk on a fused ankle, uh, and that had to be pretty uh, uh, pretty significant for the jury. That was. Um my physiatrist and originally he was supposed to give an opinion that point blank having the amputation um, would provide a better outcome as, as far as pain and function um, a big fight that came up during the voir dire during his qualifications was that um uh, it was this was not raises emotion oh no it was raises emotion and eliminate but it was the the ruling was uh held under advisement was that because he's not a surgeon, he's not qualified to offer an opinion as to which surgery uh, is better. And my position was he, he, he consults with surgeons, with patients that have had both procedures. When they decide to go the amputation route, he even works with the surgeon to decide where the amputation occurs. And then he works with the patients after the procedure to rehabilitate them. So he clearly is qualified, I thought, to talk about um, which one would have a better functional outcome. But the, the judge decided that since he doesn't do the actual surgery, he can't say which is a better route. So, and that was right as he was supposed to testify. Um, so through a wrench into him, we kind of had to pivot. I had a quick discussion with him before he got in the stand. You know, you're not allowed to say which is better. Um, but I think effectively we got that testimony out anyway. You know, he talked about all of the, without using the word better or, or this is my opinion. He talked about how much better it would be to do the one than the other. Right. And in this case, the defense even went so far as to get their own uh, uh, doctor to come in and testify that they thought an amputation was unreasonable and that he would have been better off with a fusion. And I think he came, I saw somewhere that he came up with uh, the cost of a fusion would only be $3,000. And and that's, I, I should have mentioned that part of the damages in this case were that the past medical uh, expenses, I think were about 280000 Dollars. I mean, so obviously $3,000 sounds absurdly low, but he also made the comment that that all of your experts or all of your treating physicians should have their 
board certifications revoked or something to that effect? Yep. The, yeah. the treating unbiased physician who operated on Mr. Coriel 10 times should have his license taken away for even considering that amputation is reasonable. And, and not to mention that on cross, we got out that um, this defense doctor, when we, we really drew it out, he does seven to 10 IMEs a week at $650 a pop, two depositions a week at $2,000 a pop. And he's been doing that at that volume for at least five years, all defense work. So, you know, you, 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 you run the numbers out, but he's made something like $2.7 million for defendants only doing medical legal consulting in the past five years. And he's asking the jury to believe him who saw Dave one time over the treater who saw him for over years and did all the prior surgeries. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Do you have, um, in Georgia, we have a rule that the, for a physician to testify as an expert, they have to be actively practicing or teaching within three of the past five years, you know, basically so that they can't just only be testifying all the time. Um, you know, they have to sort of, be treating patients or teaching others how to treat patients. I'm just curious if if Pennsylvania has that. No, we don't have that rule. Um, And he, if, if asked, he would have said that he was, he still was doing, he's the chief of, uh, he was the chief of orthopedic surgery at a local hospital. So he still had a practice. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how much, how much time he had for his practice. Right. Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, so let's talk about the other uh, big part of this case, which was, you know, holding dominoes into the case Um, because, you know, on its face um, and we're about to talk about the, the tremendous job that Frank and his, his team did, 
But um, on its face, I could see that it would be hard to hold dominoes in for the actions of a driver who's employed by, um, you know, a, a franchisee, um, you know, who is um, uh, at least in, in uh, at least on paper and in theory is supposed to be an employee of just uh, just the franchisee and be controlled by the franchisee. So talk a little bit, uh, Frank, about how you went about building the case against dominoes and showing uh, that they were responsible for uh, the driver uh, of this vehicle. So we, when we filed the suit, um, I didn't know how much, we didn't know how much insurance there was and we knew that the damages were significant. That's why we kept dominoes in. And right off the bat, the defense lawyer sent me a copy of the franchise agreement, their standard franchise agreement and said, you know, go to section whatever it clearly says there were independent contractors. Will you let us out? Um, we didn't, obviously, and started doing some research in at least in Pennsylvania. I don't know. I don't know about the law in the in the rest of the country, but franchises don't haven't earned any sort of special contractual treatment. It's a contract. You can call it a franchise agreement or not, but at the end of the day, it's a contract. And the law with respect to vicarious liability is pretty clear cut, um, and it's whether or not you have control or the right to control the agent's actions. So right to control was really the linchpin there. And, and um, everything evolved from two key provisions in the contract. Um, the one key provision said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not exaggerating, Domino's has the right to create any operating standard that Rebeats is required to follow at any time regarding the um, the regarding, but not limited to the following categories. And then it enumerates like 15 expansive categories. So if you look at that, not limited to language, including, but not limited to, it, it says Domino's can make any rule at any time about how Rebitza has to operate its store. And uh, we advanced the argument that the rulemaking authority is control. I mean, that that's how any employment, like my boss isn't sitting here right now telling me literally dictating what I have to do, their rules, their expectations, and I follow them. And if I don't follow them, I can get fired from my job. And if Robitza doesn't follow the rules that Domino's makes and could change at any time, then they could lose their franchise. And that's control. Um, and, and that was kind of the crown jewel, right? That is the right to exercise any control. But the reality of the agreement was they did exercise that control. They They created rules and regulations regarding literally everything. I mean, the accounting software that they had to use, how long the employees' fingernails were allowed to be, um, how who the company, who Rebitza was allowed to buy its supplies from in the quantities it had to purchase the supplies in, what time of day they had to do their cleaning. You know, for example, it says you have to do your cleaning at the close of the store. Well, if the owner was an early riser and he wanted to come in and clean before they opened the next day, he's not allowed to do that. Um, and it was a lot of little things that you look at and you think yeah, it doesn't really matter, but you, we, the plan was to lay them out. And we told the jury, like, this is pretty boring. There's 150 pages of rules here. I'm not going to go through every single page, but it's important because Domino's is going to point to what I call their get out of jail free card. It's an easy clause. It says we're independent contractors. We win. And in order to prove them wrong, um, I told the jury that we've got to walk through these provisions so that you can see that that's just an illusion. That's a farce. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so we tried to keep it as interesting as possible, but 
um, we we stressed the importance of what we were doing and then that it was necessary. And I think the jury, you know, figured it out. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, some of the great examples, and you, you had a a uh, pretty ex- extensive presentation which you shared with us, uh, where it, it goes through a lot of the contract, um, and 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 talks about how much control, and it's it's just like you said. I mean, they they basically lay out all these different ways over. I think I think the entire amount of paperwork that you had was like 150 pages. Uh, you know, basically detailing how they had to follow all the rules and regulations of Domino's. And so that Domino's controlled every aspect of everything that that happened. But yet they had this, you know, these one or two paragraphs that basically said, oh, by the way, you're independent contractors and we're not responsible, um, which is, uh, you, you know, and I thought you did a great job of, of painting the pictures, you know, this sort of like group of lawyers coming up with, you know, how can we control every aspect, but then not be responsible when things go bad. Um, and I thought that was really nice, but one, one of the things I wanted to point out is when you got into the actual like regulations of what they had to do and how they had to do it. I mean, some of the examples were just really good, but one of them that I, I wrote down was they, they told you exactly which fingers to use when you're making the dough. Um, so it wasn't even like, you couldn't use your thumb, you couldn't use your palm, you know, it was to use your index finger. Um, you know, so to that, that level of detail in, in showing how they control. It was even more specific than that. And that was, that was one of my favorite examples because it meshed so well with the instruction that ultimately got read to the jury. You know, the key, the, the key difference was an independent contractor can, can dictate the result, right? So here it would be, Here's what a pizza must look like. It has to have a crust this big. It has to have these kind of bubbles, must be this much cheese, whatever. Um, a, um, a master, master principle, uh, uh, where vicarious liability is attached, not only dictates the result, but also dictates the manner in which you have to get to that result. And here in the uh, product specifications, um, there was, this is for like their Domino's pan pizza. There was the end result, Golden brown crust, bubbles, there's this an inch and a half of crust space. Um, and then there was a page and a half before that's and it was so granular, you know, take your pointer index and ring finger and put them here after applying three tablespoons of cornstarch and stretch it out five times and then rotate 35 degrees and do it again. And then I mean, it, literally, like if that's not controlling the manner of how you get to that end result, I, I don't know what is. I, I also thought it was really interesting that the it was really persuasive to me. I think I, I read this in your um, summary judgment brief on the issue, but that the owner of the franchise was pro- prohibited from doing anything else, you know, except for running his franchise. I, you know, in terms of how much you're going to control somebody, especially saying, you know, essentially saying they can't do anything else to make money other than run their franchise is pretty uh, controlling, you know, it's not to the level of minutia that the whole pizza making thing is, but it's almost the other extreme of, of control, just telling somebody else, like how they, how they can and can't make their money. Yeah. And it, it, um, and, and that's one of the things they tried to use to, as a counter, um, to argument to us, not, not that he was required to work there, but what, what if you dig down into it, it says, so you have to work here full time. You can't do anything else. Right. I call it an employment contract. because That's what it is. Um, but then it says, but you have sole responsibility for operating your store. 
And they point to that, right? They say he, that's what he sees. He's independent. He's responsible. We can't tell him what to do. But there's a big asterisk there. So long as you comply with all of the rules that Domino's implements, which, by the way, we can implement whenever we want, and they can cover any aspect of your operations. Right. So, you know, yeah, he's allowed to run the store however he wants, as long as he does what we say, and we can change what we say at any time. I mean, there was a provision in that contract. Um, I remember it was 15.4 that said we can implement an operating manual, right? It has operating standards. We can change the operating manual whenever we want. And any change to the operating manual will be as if it is part of this contract. So we're allowed to unilaterally change the contract with new rules that you're required to follow. I mean, that that's 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 control. That's what we argue. Yeah, and and one of the things it was also a great point that you made on this, which was uh, the lawyers for Domino's uh, took time to point out, you know, why they had all these rules because they wanted to make sure everything was uniform, the product looked good, you know, that that everything looks the same, and uh, and I thought it was, you know, because that, that all is sort of compelling that yeah, of course you're going to have all these rules, but uh, and your point to that was why they have the rules really doesn't matter at all. The fact is they have them and you have to follow them and that shows control. Um, but I thought, I thought the way you handled that was very well. Yeah. You've got two choices, right? You can, you can, if you want the control and I think a lot of the rules were great. I mean, you, like the hygiene rules I use as an example. I mean, I hope everyone at a, at a at a pizza store is showering every day and then, and it's not getting, you know, they're wearing hairnets. But uh, the fact is, if you want the ability to make sure that every single franchise is doing it, it comes with legal liability. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to ask you, Frank, how many times did you read their franchise agreement before oh getting God. ready for trial? Yeah. <laughs> I have these visions of you, like, you know, keeping it under your pillow at night and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I got like all tacked on the wall with like, like right. running around like John Nash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was, it was, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm and it, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I'm not convinced. Well, I filed affirmatively for summary judgment. I, I it, when, when this ended up going to the jury, I was kind of like, I was in a tough spot because I'm like, so wait a second, I'm asking the jury to interpret this contract because to me, I said, like, these are the facts. The contract controls the relationship. So the judge should decide whether or not, because there's no, there wasn't a dispute of fact, the contract right. controlled it. Um, but, but this, this issue, which I thought was a legal issue ended up getting kicked to the jury. And then that's, that's what created the challenge of having to parse a contract in, in, in front of uh, 12 regular Philadelphians. Right. Do you think it it did? I was going to ask you about because uh, I noticed that you affirmatively moved for summary judgment was kind of, which is sort of less frequent on our side of of a case typically. Um, but I was wondering if you think it actually did you any favors to have to argue that, um, and maybe not because this isn't kind of it's not the sort of defense that seems so like frivolous that a jury is going to get angry, but. Um, you know how sometimes that can happen where a defense won't concede an issue or they're going to argue something that you're you end up being glad you could have moved on it or you could have kept it out. And you're glad you didn't because it, it, it allowed you to get either into other things you wanted the jury to see or or something like that. Yeah, I think it was I think it was on your guys's podcast. Somebody talked about being a sore winner. Was that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds familiar. 
Yes. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I felt at the end. So normally I would agree with you because I think that them them denying that they had control, they didn't give anything, right? We don't control yeah. anything. And like in light of all the evidence, like you control something, right? It made them look bad. But um, I actually was disappointed with the um, with the verdict, with the verdict amount, because if you look, the, the non-economic damages, they only provided $350,000. But based on the... Um, future medicals, they agreed that, um, you know, he, the amputation was warranted. So here you have my client who has been through 10 surgeries, spent a year of his life in and out of the hospital, living on the first floor of his uh, house because he can't get up the stairs. Um, you're just going through constant, like, I mean, multiple uh, skin grafts, bone grafts, osteomyelitis, uh, and then ultimately facing amputation. And I was expecting I was expecting a, a bigger pain and suffering award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that's one of the things that um, I, I think you know it, it, juries struggle with it, lawyers struggle with it. Is you know coming up with the right amount of of you know what does make up uh, pain and suffering and and you know those intangible um, types of damages. Did you have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards to find out you know why the about the decisions they made and why they made them? Yeah, so we did talk to the jury, um, but the judge was there and uh, we were a little bit limited in what we could ask. Um, but I think this was a situation and I, I understand it. I mean, it, in our world, $2.1 million is, is, a, is a lot of money, but it's not going to knock your socks off. But I think they thought they were um, doing really well by, by our clients. I mean, they gave them $2.1 million. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really what it came down to. Yeah, it was sometimes I always and you hear this a lot is is, you know, whether or not it's just sort of a negotiation in the in the jury room where you might have one juror who is very low on damages or almost zero damages and then say, you know, well, I'm not going to decide with you guys unless you you know put some sort of smaller amount on it. And so they end up compromising on it. I was, I was wondering if anything like that uh, had happened on that part or if you if you heard anything like that. No, what, what I heard was that they didn't know what to do. You know, because we're not allowed to ask for a number of Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the technique we use of this, uh, some old time plaintiff's lawyer, like taught it to me back in, in law school. But he says, um, imagine it's Sunday morning and you're reading your newspaper and you go to them. You've, you've heard this before. Yes, you, yes. you go to the classified ad and, you know, it's there's a help wanted sign or a, a job posting. And it says wanted somebody to go through to have their left leg shattered, to go through 10 operations in one year, to have to go through an amputation, you bang out the, the things. What's, what's a fair price for that job? Yeah. And you get as yeah. close to the line with the golden rules you can without actually jumping over it. Um, and that's what we did in this case. But they said that they said that they just weren't really sure where to go with that. And they thought yeah. that because um because they gave everything for past and future lost income and medicals, they thought they had compensated them fairly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are what, you, sorry, go ahead. Yvonne. No, no, you go. Well, I was just going to ask, are you allowed to do any type of a per diem type argument? Like, you know, uh, this much amount per year or anything like that, and then let them do the math, you know, not actually giving them the end result. You're not the closest we can go to that would be like, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't use this argument just off the top of my head. Every time he takes a step, it causes him pain. 
you know, he takes this many steps a day, this many steps a year, you should compensate him for each step, but you can't put a dollar on it. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Just thinking about you, uh, the sore winner thing, I, you know, I really don't know what else you could have done because like I said, when I interrupted Steve at the beginning about the medical illustrations that I that I actually had to stop eating while I was looking at them and they were just pictures. I'm not, not actual pictures, just, you know, drawings, illustrations, but I looking at it. And obviously this is not a medical opinion. You really look at everything he went through, not only just the break and how it started and then all the hardware he gets put in and the muscle graft and the skin graft, but then, you know, the osteomyelitis and everything else, it really starts to look like, Oh, you got to amputate this thing just because of how 
painful it looks and what a mess it looks like it, it, it's it doesn't seem like there would be anything to do to save it you know even a fusion it just seems like there'd be too much trauma in that area but that was so effective um from what you put together and so clearly communicated that i really don't i don't want you to be a sore winner because i really don't know what else <laughs> you could have done you know um you know i do think that sometimes you get you get that jury that tries to do the right thing um, and they follow, you know, the instructions or the guidance so carefully that they almost, you know, either don't realize or, or, or don't put together what else they, they could do. Yeah. Afterwards, we kind of put our tinfoil hats on and like, we're, we're just speculating as to why, what happened. I mean, it's just like everybody does. Yeah. Um, our theory for a while, and we got absolutely nothing to back this up, but I'm curious to hear if you, if you, if you all have heard anything similar or, um, if anybody else is experiencing this, but it was still early on when juries were coming back. And we wonder if the, the jurors who are willing to actually serve on jury duty when COVID was still, um, more of a looming threat, um, perhaps self-selected for a more conservative group. Right. Um, again, I, I got no data to back that up, but I, we've had a couple other uh, I have colleagues who've had trials during the COVID era and have gotten results that that they didn't expect. They were they were disappointed with. Yeah. You know, the, the I think there is some truth to that. I think one of the best ways to know is whether or not, you know, during your voir dire, did you get into any issues about COVID and about whether or not people were uncomfortable with it or what they felt about it or anything like that? Did any of that come up during jury selection? You know, it didn't, but I, I wish I had asked about it. That, that's a good idea. Now we had, we had, um, one big issue that almost, was almost a big issue. We, we dodged the bullet, but we, when we picked jury selection, you know, I don't remember exactly what happened, but for whatever reason, it was not clear to us. We wanted six jurors. It was not clear to us that one of the defendants was exercising their right to 12. So, in Philly, the trial judge doesn't sit there with you when you do the individual wadir and you pick the. Uh, uh, Just so insane. <laughs> I, 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 I know New York is the same way, and I was, you yeah. know, yeah, it's, it's kangaroo court. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's nuts. Um, and so we picked twelve, thinking because one of the other defendants said explicitly, "We want 10. So we got ten and two alternates. And this is COVID, right? Like any at any minute, the whole trial can blow up. Um. And the next day after the, the pool's gone, we have our 12 jurors. We're going to start. Um, one of the one of the defendants speaks up and, and makes it clear at that point that they wanted 12. Um, and, and under the laws of Pennsylvania, if you demand 12, you, you get 12. And, and if any one of them dropped out, it's a mistrial. We had no alternatives, alternates. So we were the whole time just like it, we were it's, it was a two week long trial. You're sitting there with clenched fists yeah. like every day thinking like, man, I really hope they, they show up. And there was a couple scares, but everybody, everybody showed up every day. Thank well, it, it's funny. You say I saw in the defendant's closing argument that he made some sort of comment, like joking about somebody having COVID and the judge did not seem uh didn't seem to find that funny at all. Um, you know, kind of like, what, what do you mean? Somebody has COVID in the courtroom? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's think that's that's August 2021. So that's, yeah. you know, lots of people haven't been vaccinated at that point. If they want to get vaccinated, some people still didn't have access to the first one or hadn't gotten the second one yet. So it's a little more distant. I feel like now, you know, we're dealing with all these variants, but that's back when it was, 
you know, there was, even if you wanted to get vaccinated, you couldn't do anything. So it was a lot more, still a scarier situation. So I would imagine there's some self selection happening along those lines. I was wondering if you thought that the motorcycle sort of bias played into it at all, or if you were able to deal with that during Vordire. That, that we did deal with. Um, okay. And we had a couple people who were, um, you know, if, if we think that if you're on a motorcycle that you've assumed the risk and, and you're, you, you get what's coming to you. Um, so we were able to strike them for cause. Um, and then, you know, we did the best we could with everybody else. Yeah. Gotcha. He wasn't, he wasn't wearing a, we actually, uh, strategically decided to, he had a head laceration, which we didn't include in. And a subdural hematoma. Yeah. We didn't put it into evidence because yeah. he wasn't wearing a helmet. Yeah. I was thinking about that because it's, uh, when I was looking at his injuries, I was thinking, well, this sounds like, you know, he's probably got some type of a brain injury. Um, but so you strategically decided not to bring that, uh, claim because, because he's not wearing a helmet. Yeah. 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 That's a good, that's a good call. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think that would just, you know, color, even though it wouldn't have affected the leg injuries at all. I, I do think that would color sort of the, the lens that, that jurors would look at the case through. Yeah. Now, I mean, the, the one fact we had on our side was that he, there was just absolutely no, um, comparative fault here. I mean, you, you don't right. get that a lot. He's driving, he's minding his own business, driving straight, doing the speed limit. And somebody makes a left turn into him. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's just the whole timing of the thing. Because I was thinking when you when it was first describing it that somebody turned in front of him and then he hits them and you know and that's what caused it. But then to time it to just you know turn left exactly into him um, and into his in, basically into his leg, um, you know, just is uh, terribly unfortunate. Yeah. How did he do through the whole, um, you know, cause he's going through this, these traumatic surgeries and medical experiences this whole time, you know, sort of alongside while you're pushing his case forward, you know, how did he deal with his, you know, his deposition going through, going to trial, having to go to trial, um, you know, at trial, how did you kind of you know, was there anything unique you sort of had to do with him or to prepare him for it? Or was he one of these guys that's just good to go? He was, they were, I ended up getting very close with him and his wife who were really great people. Um, he was, uh, he was a really hard, loving, loves his family, but hard nose, like optimistic, right? He, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't complain about anything. Um, he does what he needs to do. You know, he's never complaining about his circumstances. He was a, he was a steel worker motorcycle. He was in a motorcycle club. Was, all of his friends were, were motorcycle riders, great guys. I met some of them. Um, but his, his wife, who was a really wonderful woman, she, she was, um, a little more anxious about the whole process and, um, um, just, just sensitive to it, but, but they, they both did really great. Yeah. yeah. Did, it, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to ask you, you know, cause we had, you know, we've all had those clients where they're, um, uh, you know, it just, uh, you know, not great at showing their emotions going, you know, showing what the, the pain they're going through. They're very stoic and, and, you know, seem to, you know, and I've, I've got one right now that I'm, uh, getting ready for trial on at the end of the year, um, where I'm, you know, just trying to figure out how best to show, uh, you know, 
exactly all the pain that they're going through, what they're suffering and, and be able to, to get that to the jury. Did you have a number of uh, sort of before and after witnesses, family and friends uh, that could come in and talk about it since since he was more of a sort of a, a, a tough guy about it? Yeah. So what I did was to, for, for most of the, like for more of the, uh, like acute psychiatric stuff, we had a psychiatrist. Um, and so they can tell the psychiatrist in a, in a friendlier setting, all the things they're going to, and he can relay it to the jury. A lot of the details, um, we had, um, uh, his wife's, this was his second marriage. His wife's son come in as a before and after witness. Um, and he was great. And then we had, what we did to try to, to try to elicit more emotion from him was we didn't really have him talk about himself much. Um, instead, he talked about his wife and, and how it made him feel, you know, how did it make you feel now that you're about to retire? Just and um, you know, now your wife had to spend a year taking care of you. Right. They, they wanted to go. Their plan to retire was uh, to get an RV and, and drive around the country. And they like to go walking on the beach and dancing. He can't do any of those things. I mean, he'll be able to um, with the amputation, but he couldn't. And so how does that make you feel? And and we were able to get some emotion out of him um, because he loved his wife so much and the impact was undeniable. But that, I've had luck with that before, having people talk about other people rather than yeah. themselves. So she yeah. talked about him, he talked about her. Yeah, that's I mean, I agree with that. I mean, in fact, I usually I, I, I definitely want my client to be able to express themselves and not be not be so uh, stoic that they can't even talk about it. But it's always better, in my opinion, to have somebody else come in and talk about what they've seen in them and, um, you know, and, and the changes that they've seen in your client. Steve, it just was making me think of that. We should we should do an episode on it on the um, Frank, we did like this sort of lunch and learn thing about trauma informed advocacy, um, and kind of realizing that your clients, you know, that have been through really horrible injuries or wrongful death cases or medical malpractice cases, you know, have experienced trauma, which we all understand in addition to, you know, whatever trauma they might have in their past, that's unrelated to the case, but, but how that can play out in ways like, I think I feel like I've talked about it on the podcast before, but, you know, those clients that you have that we all have that are one person when you are meeting with them many times when you're preparing them for their deposition and then their deposition starts and they are somebody you've never met before and they say things you've never heard before or they don't say the things that you've heard 20 times um, and just kind of different ways to to handle that. Um, in addition to the the ones that I think lawyers are better, the tools that lawyers are are better at using, you know, using having them talk about pictures, having other people talk about them, having them talk about other people. So anyway, it was just really interesting, um, but you know, something for maybe for a different episode. But just sort of acknowledging that that trauma that somebody goes through can affect the way they remember details or even how they feel in that sort of setting with the defense lawyer and the court reporter. Um, and I just, I just look again, I can't stop thinking about those medical <laughs> illustrations yeah, and the yeah. trauma that your client went through. And I'd be like, man, I'd be so done with waiting rooms and OR rooms. I mean, ORs and, and doctors and everything. Isn't that such a common theme too, with the, uh, you know, you, you do your best to prep your clients for their deposition. And a lot of it's just, just for, just repeat exposure, just getting them comfortable and, 
and getting them prepared. And then when it happens, man, I mean, that's one of the times story other than trial when I'm most nervous. Because it yeah. happens so often. They go, they say things and you're like, what is, what are we like? What is this? We didn't talk about this, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, and there's a fine line to it too, because you don't want to prepare your clients so much that they come off as unauthentic or that they're rehearsed or anything like that. I mean, so you want them to be a little bit, you know, just talking from the heart. I mean, yeah. it, you know, the, if you can get them to do that, that's the best way, but yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely not an easy part of the job and it's not really something that can be taught that well. I mean, you, you know, it's just something you have to do and spend time at. Um, right. So yeah. Please, please talk from the heart. Be totally honest. Don't worry about messing it up, but also don't say anything that I would. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but remember, yeah. they're not your friend. They're here to hurt you. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. be yourself but they're not your friends so yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um i did I, I, one thing i noticed from the defense of this case and I, and I thought it was interesting because of this case where you're where you're talking about whether or not Domino's has control over robiza and, and mr morris did what were the defense lawyers representing both or representing all all of them the no no okay we're um and I, I tried to make us think about the conflict. At first, they were, okay. and then Domino's uh, ended up with their own counsel. So the Domino's part of the case was tried, like the vicarious liability case was tried by one attorney. Okay. And the auto part of the case was was tried by another. Um, and the interest so the case is on appeal. Is that my? It was at my prior firm. I'm not um, handling it anymore. But I can't believe I was saying this, Steve, before we started. I just can't believe that this is the hill. Domino's decided to to die on. So, you know, we get this verdict that um, to Domino's should be a victory, right? Because there was a one and a half underlying coverage for the franchisee. So their exposure is really not that much given what it could have been. Right. And I mean, I'm like, you guys just shut up and pay us, but we're going to, they're, they're appealing it. And if they lose on appeal, um, there's going to be law in Pennsylvania that says, appellate law that says this standard franchise agreement can create vicarious liability for dominoes. Right. Um, not to mention any, I'm sure there are similar provisions in other, you know, franchise contracts um, that this would that this would apply to. So that that's the posture of that. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful because I do think legally we're on sound footing, um, unless the appellate courts for whatever reason decide to change the law to give franchises more protection. Um, but unless that happens, I, I think it, I just don't think it's going to shake out well for them. I, well, and I, I agree. And I, I, you know, just looking at the at the uh, contract and then, you know, the evidence that you put in and, and for instance, your your uh, rebuttal scales where you sort of lay on the scales, you know, all of the stuff that um, that Domino's controlled. I mean, it, if, if the standard is control, well, there is no doubt that you met and exceeded that standard uh, to show that Domino's absolutely controlled them down to a minute detail. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if if it's going to be difficult for them to convince the appellate courts that the right to make any rule at any time about anything is not the right to control the way they operate. Right, right. And, you know, and, and the other thing, and they control how deliveries are made, you know, like because I was thinking about this, like they could have written the contract like we control everything except how you deliver the pizzas. And that's that we'll leave that to the franchisee. But they didn't even do that. No, they they. um yeah, they were very, they're very, I mean, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be new iterations of this contract, right? Where, where they, where they try that and they try to push it, see how much they can keep. Um, but until then, I mean, this is what they got. And I think their exposure is pretty big. 
Yeah. 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 But you, I mean, it's an excellent point, right? For the financial exposure from this case versus the risk of making appellate law seems not worth it. No, I just, I just don't, I just, I just don't understand it, but yeah. Yeah. it's not my job to, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, um, well, this has been uh, just a great discussion of um, uh, of this case and great work by uh, by you and your team, Frank. Um, I just wanted to make sure: is there anything that um, we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure uh, that our listeners uh, got a chance to hear about? No, we covered everything. I mean, the only other thing I wanted to say was that um, the case I tried with my last firm, Sheridan and Murray, I tried it with Neil Murray, and tremendous lawyers wouldn't have gotten the result that I did. Um, without them. So, you know, credit is due all around. Yeah. And I, I, and I saw the way you broke up the closing argument. You, you did the part about, um, you know, control and dominant and whether or not they're vicariously liable. And then I I think as your your partner, Neil Murray, uh, did the portion on the damages. Um, and we were both in the trenches together, um, built the case together and, and tried it together. And so, you know, if I just want to make sure that, that that credit is, uh, given. Well, it's a great result. I think so many of our listeners, I can certainly relate to kind of these arguments that you're fighting about the right to control employees versus independent contractors and and how it seems like companies too often can get away with controlling everything and not having any of the liability. So um, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it, you know, it's always hard to get into a jury's head on, you know, exactly what they're, uh, you know, finding in, in the, you know, for damages. And, uh, and I did hear one lawyer, uh, sort of put it well, which is, um, you know, when we, when we say we're leaving it to the enlightened conscious of the jury, we're basically saying, we have no idea how to do this. So we're going to leave it to you guys. You figure it out. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I, I guess my other takeaway from the case is this is one of those great situations where, um, they made it easy and they let us try it, right? You walk in and the one, the the, the uh, franchise tendered and Domino's said like, we'll give you 50,000. I said, great, I'm, I'm excited. Let me let me take a verdict, please. And and they never made any substantial offers. So um, I love situations like that. Yeah, yeah. Right? When, when they, there's no there's no real concern, you, it's easy to advise your client and you, and you get to swing for the fences. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. When they, when they make it, uh where you got nothing to lose and only to gain and, you know, makes it an easy decision to go to trial. Yeah. Well, um, let me remind everybody, we've been talking uh, with Frank Mangerasina uh, of Klein, Klein Spectre in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You can look up Frank at uh, KleinSpectre.com. That's K-L-I-N-E-S-P-E-C-T-E-R.com. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having Frank. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>